You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Welcome to another edition of Game Changers Clinical Conversations. I am your host, Jeff Wall, Professor of Pharmacy Practice at Drake University. Uh, welcome. And uh, today we are going to be talking about uh, another set of guidelines. Uh, we, I was saying uh, uh, in a previous show that we're going to get off the COVID hobby horse for a little while and talk about some of the updated guidelines that have come out. And today we are going to talk about the first American College of Gastroenterology guidelines for irritable bowel syndrome. Yes, this is not the most you know life-threatening sort of, of of uh, guidelines you could talk about, but uh, as I'm going to talk about here in just a minute, IBS is something that's extremely common. It's extremely debilitating to many patients, and unfortunately, we don't have a ton of really, really good treatments for it. And because many of the of the symptoms um, are are dysregulated uh, bowel habits, uh, pharmacists are often the first line. Patients are coming to you asking questions, and I think uh, 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 pharmacists can play play a play a huge role here. So uh, that's what we're talking about today. Um, um, again, thank you for listening. Head on over to uh, where you listen to your podcast. Hit a like. Uh, please subscribe if you're not already doing that. And as always, please hit, head over to our uh, producer, CE Impact, and their website. Tons of great CE for you to choose from, uh, very reasonable rates, and that includes uh, uh, Game Changers. If you were just to, to sign on with us, not only does it help us keep the lights on over here, it also allows you to get 30 minutes of CE for just hearing me yammer on for a little bit and heading over to the website and answering a simple uh, CE question. I can't imagine an easier way to get CE. So uh, please head over to do that and, and give CE Impact a, a check out if you would. So uh, irritable syndrome is, is something that that uh, is, uh, I, if you talk to gastroenterologists, is, is is something that they struggle with, to be frank. Um, uh, yeah, I've heard gastroenterologists say that, 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 that uh, you know, irritable bowel syndrome is the gastroenterology as fibromyalgia is rheumatology. In other words, it's a, it's, it's a common, fairly debilitating disorder that we really don't know what causes it and we really Really don't know how to treat it, so it's frustrating for everybody involved. It's frustrating for the patients because they want to be treated. It's frustrating for the physicians because they want to treat people, and and it's just frustrating for everybody. And so uh, it, it was. I think uh, I, I commend the American College of Gastroenterology to try to come up with an evidence-based uh, set of guidelines because many of the uh, treatments we use for IBS are based on either studies that are decades old or drugs that have never really been gone through the FDA approval process. So. Uh, I, I, again, I commend them for doing this. So, uh, IBS, of course, is not IBD, and I I, I, I make that correction all the time uh, to patients and my students, stuff like that. That inflammatory bowel disease, right, is is an autoimmune disease uh, that's usually uh, uh, subfractionated into ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease, whereas irritable bowel syndrome is is a functional gastrointestinal disorder. In other words, it's definitely a, a disorder, but we really don't know what causes it. We know that it has something to do with gut-brain interaction, and, and it probably surprises a lot of people to realize that your GI tract is, is actually very highly innervated. It actually almost has its own uh, uh, um, uh, uh, nervous system, basically, and that makes sense because peristalsis is going on all the time and, and things along those lines. Well, there is a connection between uh, uh, how the brain interprets the sensations of the GI tract, and that can be disordered, and that can lead to IBS. Now, people can get IBS after they've had had, for example, a really bad uh, a GI infection, and and, and uh, for example, chronic irritable bowel syndrome after a, a bout of C. diff colitis is, is actually very common and has, has been has been mentioned in the literature many times. 
and and unfortunately people with ibd can sometimes get ibs on top of their ibd so yeah so it's 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 a uh uh, uh no pun intended fairly messy uh uh, 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 uh uh disease to kind of talk about but it's important because it is so common um the uh guidelines for diagnosis for for ibs come from uh, uh the rome 4 criteria every so often every every seems like every 10 years or so you get a big group of gastroenterologists who basically i think lock themselves in a room and come up with with the, uh, the diagnostic criteria for a wide variety of GI diseases, and one of them is irritable bowel syndrome, um, and we'll talk about that in just a second. Um, um, the guidelines, uh, like all guidelines, uh, you know, they, they ask clinical questions, they then uh, do a literature search to figure out the answer to those questions, and then they uh, uh, do consensus to the answer to those questions based on a modified Delphi approach and based on grade methodology. Um, they, the, the ACG, when they do their guidelines, they kind of move between suggest and recommend. So if they recommend something, that's a strong recommendation. And if they suggest something, it's like, yeah, you could try this, but we have much less data to, 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 to support doing that than, than, uh, than any, than uh, uh, we would if we actually went, went over and recommended them, basically. The diagnostic criteria, basically, you need to have recurrent abdominal pain for at least one day a week for three months. And that has to be associated with two or more criteria. It has to be related to defecation. It has to be associated with a change in the frequency or form in appearance of stool. So it has to have two of those things. It has to have abdominal pain that's related to uh, bowel habits and has to be associated with either the change in the frequency of the stool or a change in the form or appearance of stool. Unbelievingly, there is actually a standardized scale for measuring stool consistency, and it is the Bristol Stool Form Scale. And we're going to go ahead and put a, put a link to that in the show notes. Just just for the lulls of nothing else, um, because it, it it literally has a, a scale of like one to seven, where you've got you know super hard versus pellety versus, and I'm not gonna if those of you are eating lunch or whatever, we're not gonna go into much detail on that, but but they do point out in the guidelines that that's probably the best way to 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 make the diagnosis because when you've made the diagnosis of IBS according to the Rome Frank four criteria, then you need to subdivide that diagnosis into the into the four most common patterns of IBS because there's IBS. C, which is mostly patients who have constipation and the abdominal pain associated with IBS. And again, they list, they, they, they say that if to, to meet that criteria, you have to have greater than one quarter of your bowel movements associated with a Bristol stool form scale of one or two with a Bristol stool form scale of six or seven occurring for less than 25%. And again, I doubt in the extreme that the average patient is going to be measuring that sort of stuff, but it is what the guidelines recommend. I think more importantly for the community pharmacist, it points out that that basically IBSC means that most of the time you have constipation with the, with the symptoms and abdominal pain and bloating that you get with IBS. IBSD most of the time you have diarrhea with the symptoms associated with uh, the bloating and pain associated with IBS. There's a mixed pattern where we really you just really have the abdominal pain, and then we'll either have bouts of diarrhea or constipation, and then there's the IBSU, which where they you don't have any real pattern at all basically, and so. That is the Rome 4 diagnostic criteria, and and the and the guidelines say that 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 it is it is uh, uh, 
reasonable to 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 use that to kind of you know first make the diagnosis and then second subdivide patients and others. And I think one of the first things to tell patients before we start talking about treatment is that um, um, the, the good news about IBS is that it it ha it is a, a serious condition, but it has no effect on lifespan. So it, you know it doesn't increase your risk for cancer or you know or developing inflammatory bowel disease or anything along those lines. So I mean the good news is that is that it it is is not a life-threatening sort of, of of condition. However, it can be extremely debilitating. And, um, uh, you know, there have been a couple of studies that have kind of pointed this out, that, that the marked negative impact on, on quality of life. There was one study that the guidelines actually point out that suggest that when they interviewed patients, the majority of patients would give up 10 to 15 years of their life expectancy for an instant cure of their condition. And another study that suggested that uh, patients with IBS, uh, if they could cure their uh, IBS symptoms would take a, a risk of, of a treatment that had a risk of sudden death of one percent. Now, before I, I, you know, you know, I, again, that I, that I think definitely points out the fact that that this is a serious disease. People that has quality of life. You know, I, I have a hard time believing that 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 a lot of people would really be willing to give a fifteen years of life expectancy for it, but maybe they would. I think what what. The, the, the point of, of what pharmacists need to know is that patients are taking their symptoms seriously. And unfortunately, it's been my experience uh, yeah, among, among some of the providers I've worked with, some of the pharmacists I've worked with over the years, that, you know, IBS is not taken very seriously. It's like, you know, so what? You're having difficulty going, going poop. Is that that big of a deal? You know, well, it is that big of a deal. And, and whether you, you know, whether you, you know, you know, would believe that they're willing to give up 15 years of their life expectancy, the bottom line is they believe that. And what that tells us is that this is a serious condition that is seriously affecting their quality of life, and we really need to take the disease seriously and apply the best uh, uh, evidence base we can to it. So then how do we do that? Well, once you've made the diagnosis of, of, of uh, irritable bowel syndrome, do you need to rule out other stuff? And unfortunately, many of these patients go down the diagnostic black hole where they get colonoscopies and, you know, all this testing done that, you know, they get a million dollar workup for every little thing. And the guidelines point out that that's just really not necessary, that if they meet the Rome 4 criteria, you you don't need to do invasive uh, uh, testing and, and really expensive testing. In fact, they say there's really only two things you need to test for, and that's celiac disease, which is a simple uh, blood test, and uh, uh, checking their stool for fecocalprocin or fecolactoferrin. And, and both of these um, 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 can be checked in, in because there's about a 1% crossover. People have both IBS and IBD, and if uh, their fecocalprotectin or their fecolactoferrin is high, that means that, that there's some inflammatory markers in their stool, and that may, you know, uh, um, uh, indicate uh, the need for further workup. But if those are negative and those are relatively cheap and inexpensive labs uh, that are blood or, you know, blood or stool tests, and if those are negative, you can, you can, you know, uh, comfort the, the patient and say, look, this is serious and we're going to take care of it. But the good news is it's going to have no effect on, on, on your lifespan or lead to cancer or anything along those lines. So once you've made the diagnosis, what's the first thing to recommend? Then the guidelines actually ran. The first thing is actually to uh, uh, try and get, get the patient to establish a FODMAP diet. And this is, uh, uh, there's now been several studies that have suggested that if you can eliminate uh, uh, FODMAPs or, or the fermentable saccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides and polyols, that's what FODMAP stands for, um, it, uh, that patients with IBS, uh, it actually can really improve uh, some of their symptoms because it increases GI water secretion 
and uh, uh, or I'm sorry, uh, FODMAPs increase GI water secretion and increase fermentation in the colon. This leads to luminal distension. It leads to uh, um, meal-related symptoms. So when people eat a lot of FODMAP-based uh, uh, diet and they get a lot of that stuff, that leads to what I've heard patients tell me are kind of attacks of IBS, where they get a really bad abdominal pain and they really got to go to the bathroom, or they, you know, et, et cetera, et cetera, and 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 that can be related to that. Uh, that isn't just an old wives' tale. There actually was a, a, a study that suggested that a low FODMAP diet was associated with about a 31% uh, reduction in global IPS systems uh, symptoms compared to, to just a standard diet. So, very simple thing to recommend is you know uh, you know a FODMAP diet is is something that if they can adhere to seems to be pretty beneficial. The second step again is dietary fiber and and uh, particularly if constipation is a predominant complaint, uh, um, uh, fiber seems to be very beneficial. Uh, they do point out that that soluble fiber is really what you uh, want to recommend, and that of course is found in psyllium. So you know, Metamucil or any of its eight million uh, generics um, uh, can be used, um, and and it's important to uh, 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 try to get patients to that kind of 15 to 20 grams a day of fiber. That can be difficult to do. Some patients will have increased bloating. You also want to make sure to have patients take uh, a fiber with a full glass of water, so because it keeps it does help keep the fiber kind of moving through the, the GI tract, which is a good thing. Um, so they, they do point out that soluble fiber, uh, again, especially in IBSC, uh, is, is, is the reasonable next step. So we haven't even really talked about medications at this point. We, we've really just said, you know, dietary adjustments can, can sometimes really help patients. So a big change that uh, has come out uh, that, that from this set of guidelines, um, which again, I think is, I think affect a lot of people, is they actually come out and recommend against the use of GI antispasmodics that are currently available in the United States to treat global IBS symptoms. And I think every pharmacist listening to me has filled his or her fair share of dicyclamine and hyoscyamine and Librax and and you know all uh, Donatol and all these other medications. And uh, the the theory is they work because they basically are smooth muscle relaxants that seem to work pretty, uh, particularly in high concentrations in the GI tract. Um, but most of these medications uh, were were in use long before the FDA came into being, drugs like hyoscyamine in particular. So they've never been FDA approved for anything really. Um, and and when the uh, uh, writers of the guideline took a hard look at the evidence, they basically found that there was none, that there really is almost no studies in the modern era that are reasonably done at all that any of these drugs can be recommended. And so they basically say that, you know, we don't really know the side effect profile. We don't really know anything about that. So there's just a paucity of evidence supporting, supporting their efficacy. We don't know if the risk of risk of side effects outweighs their benefit. We would recommend not using them. So that's a big, I mean, that's huge. I, you know, again, you know, most, I suspect IBS patients are on one of these drugs, especially in the United States. And so to recommend against them is, 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 is fairly important. I think. So you may say to yourself, well, okay, so what are we going to recommend these patients? I may be able to tell the, the doc, well, you know, that nobody recommends, you know, hyoscyamine or, or dicyclamine anymore for these drugs. So what, what do we recommend? Believe it or not, peppermint.
Yes. And I quote the guidelines. We suggest, so not recommend, but we suggest the use of peppermint to provide relief of global IBS symptoms. Yes, peppermint has now actually been studied. Um, We don't really know exactly how peppermint works. We know that it has some effect on on the blockade of calcium channels in the GI tract, and that leads to smooth muscle relaxation. But again, nobody really, really knows. There's been actually several decent studies that have looked at peppermint oil and placebo, and a recent meta-analysis was actually just published looking studies really across the globe and found, uh, even though they were relatively short week studies, uh, that yeah, for all IBS symptoms, uh, it decreased, um, um, the, or, I'm sorry, the odds ratio of, of, of improving symptoms was 2.39, so pretty decent, you know? And uh, and so again, you know, with really probably no side effects, uh, probably you'll be, uh, you, know, uh, you know, you make more friends because your breath will smell minty fresh, um, but it also seems to help help symptoms quite a bit as well. So as we can get people off of antispasmodic, I think it's entirely reasonable to consider peppermint oil, either capsules or, or other formulations to do that. Well, since we're in this area, what about probiotics? Um, they actually punt on probiotics. They don't re- recommend them uh, just because they note that, that there's really very little, little, little literature out there. And then the same problems with probiotics that, you know, studying probiotics always exists that, well, you know, what form, how much, you know, you know, you know, is it the right amount of what type of probiotic, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so they actually don't recommend probiotics due to the poor literature surrounding them. Here was a big surprise uh, from the guidelines I hadn't, I hadn't expected is a polyethylene glycol 3350, what everybody I think knows as Miralax. Um, and again, I suspect every pharmacist out there dispenses Miralax on a pretty regular basis. They actually call out Miralax and say, do not recommend Miralax because there's now been two studies that have looked at at Miralax and IBC patients and has not found a benefit. So pretty interesting. I did not know that. I didn't know that uh, that uh, Miralax uh, had been actually studied in, in trials looking at an irritable bowel syndrome and not finding a benefit. So that, that was a big surprise to me. I like to think I keep up on this area of the literature, but I, I, those had kind of passed me wide, wide, and handsome and hadn't realized those. They do point out that we have two FDA-approved drugs in IBSC, uh, both lubaprostone and linactylide. Uh, the former is a calcium channel antagonist, and, and, and the latter works on CGMP. Uh, they do seem to have a benefit in both relieving the constipation symptoms of IBS, but they also have effects on, on abdominal pain and bloating as well. But as anyone will tell you, they're also unbelievably expensive, and they, and they do point out that 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 uh, cost is a real issue, especially when you look at, at some of the studies not showing a tremendous benefit uh, with these two drugs, but they do have the advantage of both being FDA approved for IBSC. So what about IBSD? Uh, they actually do recommend, speaking of unbelievably expensive drugs, using rifaximin to treat global IBSD sim- um, symptoms. And we know rifaximin, of course, is a non-absorbed antibiotic, uh, which is uh, actually uh, approved for the treatment of IBSD. Uh, you know, th- we now know that that uh, in certain patients that they have uh, they have irritable bowel syndrome type symptoms, it's probably due to bacterial overgrowth syndrome. So uh, uh, they've, they, for whatever reason, uh, fermenting uh, organisms have now really overgrown their small bowel and they're making a whole bunch of it. And that's leading to distension and pain and diarrhea and all this other stuff. Obviously, rifaximin will, 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 will treat those patients. Uh, but even in patients who have been shown to not have um, uh, a bacterial overgrowth, rifaximin seems to help in IBSD. 
and has a uh, has a, a fairly low number needed to treat of only nine. But again, the 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 real issue with rifaximab because it has virtually no side effects is that it's just unbelievably expensive, um, you know. And even a, a ten day course is hundreds of dollars. And and again, many patients are not going to be able to get their insurance companies to pay for it. Um, another kind of uh, 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 unusual drug that I remember because I remember when it first came out 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 in the market was a losatron. And for those older pharmacists out there, yes, a losatron is still on the market. Um, I remember when it first came out, it was actually the first big treatment for IBSD. Um, and people thought it was a great drug until it caused a lot of bowel obstructions and death because of bowel perforations. And then they said, oh, maybe we shouldn't do that. And so uh, uh, a losatron is, is, is a, a, a serotonin drug um, that, that uh, has, does seem to work for IBSD pretty decently, but it was uh, taken off the market in 2000 because of, of these risks of ischemic colitis and, 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 and perforation, perforated colon. Um, and so uh, basically it was reintroduced in, in, in you know, several years later and basically they had a very, very strict uh, group of people who could be on it. It was only women who had more than six months of severe IBD syndromes that didn't uh, respond to other therapies, which they didn't really define. And they did note that at lower doses, which is what the, what the FDA is now recommending, that there doesn't seem to be as much issue with, with, with safety. But uh, getting the drug is, is, is going to be uh, access and cost is still a real issue with this medication. It's a REMS drug. And so a lot of pharmacies aren't going to carry it because it's pretty expensive. And there are very few patients on it. So it's, it's, it's going to be one of those where I think pharmacists can really work if, if the losatron is really the right, right drug for the patient. You know, getting access and cost of the drug is, is really going to be an issue. Alexadiline is a peripherally acting uh, mixed mu and kappa opioid receptor agonist and delta opioid receptor antagonist that was just in the last few uh, couple of years approved for both men and women with IBSD. Um, again, so it is FDA approved. Uh, there's been a couple of large phase three studies that have looked um, at it uh, and, and looked at, at, at this drug and then all patients who met the Rome 3 criteria for IBSD. They did find that it, it worked pretty decently. Uh, um, um, they found that, that uh, a lower dose doses of the medication compared to placebo, had a number needed to treat of, of 10 and 14 to, to basically cause a, at least a, a 50% improvement in symptoms and a 30% decrease in, in, in uh, loose stools. So, I mean, it seems to be pretty reasonable. Most common side effects with L-U-oxidine uh, treatment, of course, would be constipation. That kind of makes sense. Nausea is also reported um, um, as well. Um, the, the big issue with this drug is pancreatitis in, in uh, um, uh, the study there's actually or in the drug there's actually a boxed warning uh, in patients uh, that that uh, um, uh, patients who do not have a gallbladder um, uh, actually shouldn't be on the medication and so uh, because they're at higher risk of, of developing pancreatitis um, and so they it's now contraindicated in patients with a history of pancreatitis those without a gallbladder and then patients at risk for pancreatitis primarily alcoholism alcohol abuse or addiction um, and they do try say the people are on this medication should not consume more than three alcohol-containing beverages per day, um, and also in patients with, with hepatic impairment, it should not be used as well. It's also fairly pricey. So they so they they point that out as well, but that is FDA approved. Um, you know, for IBS they, the, um, they they point out that lopiramide is is not recommended as first line therapy because it may improve diarrhea, but doesn't tend to improve any of the other symptoms. That may be true, but I will tell you that I've recommended lopiramide for many many years for IBSD, and it, and especially for patients who have when they know an attack is going to come, and and some patients with IBSD will definitely tell you, you know, I you know I'm I'm okay most of the time, but when I get really nervous. Or 
or I get scared or I, you know, I get anxious about something, um, especially after I've eaten, I'm, I know an attack is going to hit me. And so, you know, uh, I'm about to present, you know, uh, you know, a, a presentation to a bunch of colleagues, you know, taking some lapiramide an hour before can, can really, really help. So not taking it regularly, but kind of as needed uh, for, for, for especially people who tend to have a quote unquote attacks of IBSD, I think are, 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 is reasonable to do, knowing that it's probably not going to improve the abdominal pain and bloating because that's just not how that, 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 that drug is, 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 is reasonable to use. What about patients who have just, you know, they have the mixed version, so they have a little bit of diarrhea, a little bit of constipation, or they uh, don't have a lot of stool issues, but it more of the abdominal pain and bloating. Uh, they actually do recommend that TCAs can be used for, for global treatment of symptoms um, and, and that uh, 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 they, they point out that, that we're not using them, obviously, as antidepressants, but we're using them as neuromodulators because they can improve visceral pain and central pain um, uh, because, essentially, they're kind of old SNRIs is a good way to think about them. Obviously, because they, they have anticholinergic effects, uh, if, they, if they seem to be particularly beneficial and people have diarrhea as an issue or IBSD um, be, be, uh, because of that, but they can also work even in patients who, who just don't have a ton of constipation as well, especially the low doses that we use. They do point out now that there's actually been uh, uh, several studies that have been published um, uh, with uh, uh, TCAs with for, uh, irritable bowel syndrome patients, um, uh, not a ton of patients, only about 800 patients in all these studies. Uh, they, they looked at a, a meta-analysis that looked at, at, at six different studies and, and found that, that, uh, it, that it improved symptoms anywhere from about 42 to, to, to 60%, um, and, and that they didn't find a lot of difference between the studies, so they do recommend that, that, that TCAs are, are reasonable to use at low doses. You probably would want to go much above of, you know, 25 or 50 milligrams of, of any of these medications. I often recommend nortriptyline or disipramine uh, to my physicians who are prescribing TCAs uh, because they're secondary amines. They tend to have less anticholinergic side effects. Um, so, uh, you know, even though amitriptyline, I think, is the one that everyone kind of reaches for, I think I've, I've managed to work with, with my physicians enough to, 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 to select disipramine um, or, or nortriptyline as long as they're not too expensive. Again, sometimes those are hard to get because they're more pricey, uh, especially in the elderly who might have IBS because I think they're obviously more likely to, to, to be affected by the anticholinergic side effects. So that's kind of a wrap-up of, 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 of the, the uh, IBS guidelines. Again, it's, it's something that most community pharmacists run into, I think, quite a bit because patients come to them and say, you know, gee, I've been having diarrhea for three months or I've been constipated for a lot. What would you recommend? And it's, it's certainly reasonable to say, do you have some abdominal pain with that? Do you have, uh, you know, bloating with that? How long has this been going on? Have you seen your doctor? What have they said? And, and you know, if they do get diagnosed with IBS, I, I think, again, you know, helping providers and helping patients pick appropriate uh, therapies, especially in the early phases. You know, how, how are you doing with your FODMAP diet? Um, how, you know, um, how are, how is, uh, you know, is the fiber too much for you? You know, can we try another type of fiber? Um, you know, uh, well, let's try peppermint oil to see if it helps with the abdominal pain, with the bloating and stuff like that. Those are all, you know, pretty easy things that once the diagnosis of IBS has kind of been, been, been you know, sussed out, that, that I think that, that pharmacists can, can make that recommendations. And then, of course, monitoring patients on all these medications, especially some of these more expensive ones that have some safety issues that are, 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 are pretty unusual, as to point out. So, so we'll wrap up in just a bit, but first, a, 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 a message from CE Impact. Game Changers discusses clinical guidelines and pharmacotherapy trends that significantly impact practice. Game Changers is produced and accredited by CE Impact and hosted by Dr. Jeff Wall. New episodes are released each week and available for pharmacy continuing education credit to CE Impact subscribers. 
CE Impact subscription service brings you the CE you need on the topics that matter the most. Check out the link to sign up in the show notes. Use code podcast for a pharmacy podcast network discount. So, you know, again, not the most glamorous discussion. I, I fully admit that, but uh, it's something that, that doesn't mean we don't want to give it the attention it deserves. It's certainly something that your patients are going to come and talk to you about. It's certainly something your patients are going to have. And I think, you know, it, I'm, I'm, I, I commend the American College of Gastroenterology for, for one, actually sitting down and, and looking at the literature, looking at the evidence for diagnosis and treatment of IBS and, and providing, I think, some pretty, you know, easy to follow guidelines because, again, most GI docs are not going to see these patients. It's going to be mostly primary care providers and, you know, you know, saying, no, you don't need to refer them to me for a colonoscopy, no matter how much I'd love the, the, the revenue that would generate. You don't need to send them to me for a colonoscopy if they, you know, if their fecal uh, protein, uh, cal protein is negative or fecal aquaferrin is negative, they don't have celiac disease and they meet the Rome 4 criteria, you know, we can move on from to treatment from there. And I think that's, I think that's important. And I, and I think, I think these guidelines do do a good job of, 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 of easy to understand, easy to follow guidelines and really step out on a limb. I mean, really saying, you know, all these medications that we use, these antispasmodics, we're just not going to recommend anymore. It'll be interesting to see the uptake on that uh, in the prescribing community, because these are drugs that have been used for probably over 50 years for these diseases. So, so that wraps it up for this uh, uh, episode of Game Changers. Again, please uh, head over to ceimpact.com. Give us a like, uh, sign up for some CE programs. Let's keep the lights on um, and uh, uh, you know, spread the word. Tell your friends that, that uh, we're on and we're, we're trying to provide some good information and some good CE for, uh, for the providers out there and the prescribers out there and the pharmacists out there. So uh, we'll catch you next week. Thanks very much. Remember that time flies. I don't know where it's going, but the most important day is today. Take care. Thank you.